Welcome to the Virtual Word Rounds, a surgery podcast that helps you answer those burning questions you never had a chance to ask by the bedside. Welcome back to the Virtual Word Rounds. This is our first Virtual Word Round episode for 2022. So welcome back all our listeners from 2021. Uh, we are aiming for better and gooder and more exciting things this year. Uh, as always, on our podcast, uh, we have our star host, Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Serge. Happy New Year and all that. Thank you. Happy New Year to you too. How was your holidays? Lovely. I am still holidaying. So. And did you end up making it to Queensland? or? I did. Thank you for asking. It was so great. And then the testing got out of control as I came back. So killer timing. Is it? Is it all about rats now, is it? Yeah, I found a place. Full of I rats. Okay, yep. tell me later. Don't tell anyone else in the podcast. <laughs> and today we're talking about a very, very important topic, and it's very close to my heart. Um, we're talking about DVT prophylaxis or VTE prophylaxis if you're American. Today on our show, we have Catherine. Uh, hi, Catherine. Hi, Serge. Hi, Wendy. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And Catherine, uh, uh, Catherine, are you um, a medical student as well? I am. I am going into fourth year this year with Wendy. Fantastic. Hmm. Yes. And tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm um, also a hospital pharmacist um, and I have subspecialised in oncology. Um, and other than professional info, I have an adorable little toy poodle puppy who, um, you know, I love dearly and who's my fur baby. So, and I'm in Melbourne um, and that's about it really. Fascinating, fascinating. So why would you give up a perfectly good career of a mm. pharmacist for the dreadful long hours and completely unrewarding experience of a medical student and going on to internship and so on. It, trust me, I have asked that question to myself multiple times in the last three years. <laughs> but the truth is that um, I think ultimately for me, I really wanted to learn more and I wanted to do a bit more. And I loved my career and I still do um, as a hospital pharmacist, but I also wanted a bit of a change. So yeah. That's it. I think I think the potential, the the choices that you get with uh, with an MBBS or Bachelor of Medicine or medical doctor degree are just so vast. The choices, uh, and uh, I think that's probably what it is about. As a as a hospital pharmacist, uh, as a pharmacist, you probably have some choice, but uh, with uh, with an MD, I think your choices will be pretty much limitless. Uh, while we have you uh, on our show, Catherine, I'm going to uh, twist your arm and uh, ask you to come back again in the future and uh, tell us about your experience as a hospital pharmacist and, and tell our uh, young future doctors um, what to do and what not to do and how to make friends with the pharmacist and pharmacy department. Would you, would you agree to that? Yes, absolutely. I'd be very happy to come along again and um, just tell you anything that might be of any use um, in that regard. <laughs> we've we've got it we've got it on record now so you can't you can't say no <laughs> all right wendy um are you ready 
Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Take it away. Great. And welcome, Catherine. So today, Catherine, you are the intern on our surgical team and you've been asked to chart DVT prophylaxis for our post-op patient. So before I ask, I guess, some more nitty-gritty questions, why is this such an important area that we're talking about today? Yeah, so it's important because it's something um, that is that you need to consider whenever you are prescribing for your patients. And this is especially focused on a surgical ward route or ward. So what we want, what we want to do by considering and assessing a DVT risk in a patient is, you know, we want to prevent any serious morbidity and mortality outcomes that can develop because of a DVT. Also, the other thing is that it's quite common. So about 20 to 30% of surgical patients, they will develop a, um, a VTE, which, you know, is an acronym for venous thromboembolism mm-hmm. without any prophylaxis. Yeah, okay. Um, and Serge, just having seen this in practice in terms of doing the charting, and is this something you would request often of, say, an intern? DVT prophylaxis is is is, is extremely important, and uh, and the reason why it is important is because it's completely preventable. Pa- surgical patients, especially, uh, are at high risk of getting uh, developing DVTs. Fifty percent of those DVTs will end up um, embolizing and causing PEs, and if you have a patient dying from PE, it is it is really really, really bad these days because in the majority of times it would have been completely preventable. When I when I start with a new team, so every three to six months, I personally make sure that all patients get charted or assess their, their DVT risk and all patients that need their DVT prophylaxis charted have it charted. I think it is part of my um, responsibility to train people uh, in in DVT prevention, and so that they can go on and transfer that knowledge onto 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 um, uh, other people, other colleagues, and protect their patients from developing DVTs and PEs. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, nothing hurts a surgeon more than a patient succumbing to a massive PE after a beautiful anterior resection. Okay. <laughs> uh, but seriously, though, it is absolutely preventable, and if we don't. Uh, do everything to prevent that. They, it might still happen, but mm-hmm. the risk changes dramatically. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the word risk there, Serge. I guess my next question, and maybe um, Catherine, if you want to have a go at this, is who who are we giving the DVD, DVT prophylaxis to and are we kind of risk stratifying first? Yeah, so basically to answer this question, it's important to understand that all your patients fit into one of three categories. Um, so before you even consider charting DVT prophylaxis, you need to stop and think, you know, what category does this patient fit into? So there's the low, moderate or high risk category. Um, you can sort of start thinking about, well, you know, low risk, who are those patients? So patients who are mobile, um, non-surgical patients, patients who've had a minor procedure and patients who don't have any risk factors for VTE, um, and also young pediatric patients, typically. Mm-hmm. So those patients are people you, we're not thinking so much about, you know, prescribing 
um, DVT prophylaxis. However, the moderate to high risk are the ones that we really want to focus on for the purpose of prescribing um, prophylaxis. An example of a high-risk patient, so there's sort of five main categories. There's mm -hmm. the orthopaedic patients who've had knee or hip replacements and also the patients that have had a hip fracture repair. Oncology patients, so patients who have undergone major abdominal surgery or pelvic surgery, they are already oncology patients prone to thrombosis um, because of their cancer, but also then you throw in a major surgery to the abdomen, you know, and, you know, the risk goes up substantially. Mm -hmm. Then you've got your trauma patients, people that have sustained several severe injuries, then patients who have acquired an acute spinal cord injury. And lastly, it's the patients who are thrombophilic. Um, so those who've got some sort of disorder um, that makes them more prone to coagulation, uh, but they should already theoretically be on an anticoagulant. Yeah, nice summary, Catherine. Is there anything you want to add to that, Serge? I wanted to ask, um, uh, Catherine, so the high-risk patients are easy, that those, those ones we identify uh, before mm. they even hit the, um, uh, the ward. The low-risk patients, the ones that we don't think about um, DVT prophylaxis, the young, the mobile, the day-stay colonoscopies, they're also pretty easy. The, the challenging thing becomes on the edges of, sort of the low to moderate risk. You know, your overnight lap, lap, lap coli or your um, day-stay uh, hernia uh, or your split-skin graft uh, or something along those lines. Um, this, is, this, is where, this is where the challenge is. Do you have a system of uh, sort of uh, figuring out and, uh, something easy to figuring out who needs chemical, who needs mechanical, who needs in, in that sort of subgroup, Catherine? In my mind, from my practice, if they don't clearly fit into low risk or high risk, they're probably going to be somewhere in between. And I think you need to then consider um, what is this patient's um, VTE risk factors? And you probably can talk about them better than me, Serge, but um, there are ways that I think there are tools you can use to assess these things. Um, is there anything that you use, Serge? I use a very, very simple approach. Uh, it's probably not something that I would uh, encourage people to use because there are much better systems. But my system, my approach to, uh, to DVT prophylaxis is that uh, everyone should get it unless contraindicated. Uh, and by everyone, I mean everyone who is not in the lowest risk group. So I would not, you know, chat DVT prophylaxis to the colonoscopy, but if if I have a lab coli overnight admission for anything, most of these people will have another risk factor that will push them into the moderate category anyway. Unless it is contraindicated, I feel that DVT prophylaxis should be charted because it prevents the risk um, of DVTs. And the risk of bleeding from the DVT prophylaxis is very minor for 99% of general surgical procedures. So I think, Serge, a good summary there would be 
I guess, a safer approach. So anything low, we can kind of more clearly identify, but where it starts to beginning, be a bit vague around our risk, be safe and just do the prophylactic, prophylactic approach. That's kind of the rule of thumb. Yeah. Uh, the best way would be to use one of the hospital systems available. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have an easy access to a an online system scoring calculator, or if you're too busy, say you're a surgical intern, uh, you might as well just chat the DVT prophylaxis. Or you know, you can ask your ask your registrar if this patient should be on DVT prophylaxis. Okay, cool. But don't sweep it under the carpet. If you identify mm-hmm. patients without DVT prophylaxis, there must be a reason. Okay, and if there mm-hmm. is no reason, it's probably uh, omitted by mistake. Yeah, okay. So we've kind of almost mentioned the methods of prophylaxis here. Catherine, do you want to kind of just tell us what the big three are and then maybe we can just go into each one a little bit? Yeah, sounds good. So the three main categories are graded compression stockings, a.k.a. TED stockings. Um, Then you have your intermittent nomadic compression or calf compressors. And then you have your chemical prophylaxis um, or your drug um, Mm -hmm. prophylaxis. The graded compression stockings, basically, you know, they're low cost. There is some sort of, I guess, limited benefit from it. Um, But um, I think basically it is standard for all post-op patients to use compression stockings unless they're low risk or unless um, it's contraindicated. So an example where I've actually seen on the wards is if a, if a patient's actually had surgery to that leg, you're not going to then go and put a compression <laughs> compression um, stocking over that because I, I assure you that there'll be a surgeon or there'll be a wound care nurse who's going to throttle you if you go and <laughs> Or just the patient them themselves. And there's that too. <laughs> Sure. We're not supposed to throttle interns anymore. I'm sorry. That's, that's, not, that's not allowed in this podcast. A ver- verbal throttling. But, yeah, but before, metaphorical. But before, but before you uh, unroll that compression stocking, just check uh, that the patient has pulses and that that leg is not dropping off or mm. has a split skin graft attached to it. It may not be a good look. But yes, socks are not dead stockings and tubic grip is not good enough either. Uh, The compression stocking is supposed to be actually fairly tight. Mm. And so the other thing that you can get from compression stockings, if you're not careful, is they can get rolled up and they can produce pressure areas. Mm. Okay. So those compression stockings ideally need to be measured. Um, they, They come in a variety of sizes and they must be long enough so they don't roll up under the knee. Um, and, and cause cause pressure areas. So how often do we change them on that? When they get dirty. When they go home. When they get dirty. When they get dirty. When they get dirty. Yeah. So good general principle. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay. So our next method, Catherine, did you want to talk about those or maybe you, Serge? Uh, the, uh, the SCUDs, the yeah. SCDs, the intermittent pneumatic compressions, the calfies. SCUDs. Uh, yeah, SCDs, I think that's another abbreviation for them. So there's a ton. Uh, those things are um, uh, pneumatic calf compressors, mm-hmm. and they come, the, the most common variety, the operating theater variety is just over ankle, but they also come in full leg length uh, for those oh. major procedures, 
that last uh, for a long time. So you you might see them in uh, tertiary referral centers. Uh, and what they do is they pump up and down above the venous um, pressure, return pressure, uh, to uh, actively uh, promote uh, emptying of superficial and deep veins. Um, so they should be used for any surgery over 30 minutes duration. Um, and they can be continued uh, post-procedure. Uh, it's very difficult to walk in them. So you usually only apply those calf compressors when, if the patients uh, need them on the ward when the patient is in bed or sitting down. Um, and if, if your patient for some reason is not allowed to have their Klexa and a heparin, uh, then you can uh, ask for the, uh, the compressors to be left on and, uh, and can to continue while the patient is in hospital. As far as uh, side effects from, uh, from uh, calf compressors, it's fairly minimal. Uh, they can also be applied incorrectly. They can be too large and not work. They can mm. be too tight and, and not work. Um, and they can pro produce pressure areas if you apply them incorrectly for a long duration surgery. Uh, but usually they're very, very safe and very beneficial. Mm. And um, uh, Catherine, I'm going to take over uh, from Wendy now and, and, and going to pass the, uh, the baton to you uh, to talk about the chemical uh, prophylaxis. Oh, sounds good. All right. So basically there are two main types of chemical prophylaxis. There's the unfractionated heparin, which is just referred to as heparin. And then there's the low molecular weight heparin, which you'll typically see in hospitals as enoxaparin, commonly known as uh, the brand name Clexane. So when you're thinking about prescribing heparin, the typical dose is 5,000 international units twice a day or three times a day, and the route is subcutaneous. So I have to admit, the more common one I see is the low molecular weight heparin. And is there a reason um, why, uh, Catherine? Yes. Tell us, tell um, us. Oh, my goodness, they're putting me on the spot. Um, so basically, um, you can give Clexane daily, which is much more convenient Less needles. for nurses. Mm -hmm. And there's fewer needles for the patient because they will develop bruises where you inject. Clexane actually has higher bleeding risk uh, compared yes. to heparin. So, uh, and Clexane, I think you were going to tell, uh, tell us about it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Clexane needs to be renally adjusted occasionally. But um, the big thing about heparin is that it has a much higher risk of hits or hit. Uh, do you know what it is? Hits, yep. heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Or thrombosis. Okay, it's a or H-I-T or H-A-T-T. And it's a big enough thing that there was a, a fairly major drive, uh, I think, in the States to avoid heparin and to uh, prescribe Clexane. And uh, Clexane can also cause a hit, but it is a lot, a lot rarer. So that's the reason why majority of people will prescribe Clexine and not heparin. Yeah, that's really useful. Thank you for that insight. I wanted to mention a couple of things on this note. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I have seen a couple of patients who have recorded hits mm. and um, typically we've given them Fondopyronex, so a sort of non-heparin-based anticoagulant. Yep. Um, it's not something that you'll see a lot of, but it's something just to, if you see it on a chart, um, maybe think about has this patient got this particular uh, adverse reaction historically. And the other thing is um, when thinking about dosing Clexane, the normal dose is 40 milligrams daily for prevention of DVTs. However, if you have a patient who is obese, so um, a BMI of over 35 and over 105 kilos, the evidence says, then you can actually um, sort of increase the dose. So you can give 40 BD. This is subcutaneous. Um, or there's some evidence that you could give it um, 0.5 milligram per kilo daily. The other thing is there might be times where it's appropriate to actually reduce the dose. And typically that's if a patient has um, renal impairment. So if they've got a calculated renal clearance of less than 30 mils per min, then you want to think about halving the dose. So 20 milligrams a day. Mm -hmm. Another occasion where the evidence is sort of less clear, but I do see this in practice. When a patient is quite... Um, underweight so less than 50 kilograms so you sort of start thinking about what kind of patient would that be it's typically sort of an, uh, an older smaller frailer um, lady typically um, then you'll see again that 20 milligram uh, daily dose and that's just to make sure that we are appropriately dosing so you're giving a smaller dose for those patients because you don't want them to bleed too much mm -hmm. And you're giving a slightly higher dose for the sort of larger patients because you want to make sure that it's going to work. That's very, that's very, very useful, Catherine. So it's not all size, one size fits all. Um, you need to think about those adjustments for really big people, for really small people. And you need to remember that Clexane is really excreted. And so if your renal function is poor, you need to think about that as well. So if you have a really small person with bad renal failure, mm -hmm. what would you recommend as far as chemical prophylaxis goes, Catherine? Yeah, I would definitely say consider uh, Clexane, 20 milligrams daily. Or? Or heparin, yeah. Yeah, heparin is, uh, is also uh, renally excreted, but it's not dependent on renal excretion to the same extent. And so yeah. it is a bit safer, but you can also halve the dose. You can give two, two and a half thousand units without worrying about it too much. Mm. One other little thing I would say is there's sort of a category of patients where, and this is certainly something that you have much more experience in search, but um, where postoperatively a patient is... Um, bleeding quite a bit, um, you know, bleeding from the wound, maybe bleeding internally. Mm. And in which case, if you're the intern, definitely something you need to check with the surgeon about. Is this appropriate to be continuing with the DVT prophylaxis? It still may be, mm. but it's something that really needs to be asked. And the other thing is, if this patient is super complicated, um, it might need to be a conversation that also involves hematology with the surgeon. So that's just a little sort of disclaimer. Um, and by super complicated, you mean pharmacologically or yes. previous bleeding disorders or something along those that's lines? Right. Exactly, exactly. Something that really is above an intern's 
um, scope and pay bracket. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Always, always escalate things that you're unsure about. And at the beginning of your internship, you will be unsure about a lot of things. And as you develop your skills, um, you will you will become more and more certain about uh, straightforward things. It's very important to identify those complex patients. And definitely, if you have someone bleeding, um, please don't give them blood thinners. Uh, that's a that's a good that's a good sort of rule of thumb. And uh, that sort of falls into into my rule of thumb uh, for DVT prophylaxis. Uh, everyone should have it unless you have exclusions unless you have contraindication. And uh, uh, hemodynamic instability and bleeding is, is one of the absolute contraindications. Uh, and while we're there, I might as well mention the other ones. So intracranial bleeding is absolute contraindication to uh, any sort of uh, anticoagulation, including DVT prophylaxis, mm -hmm. um, uh, craniotomy or intraocular surgery. Uh, severe liver disease. So if you've got uh, cirrhosis, uh, child's B or C cirrhosis, who um, anticoagulate themselves, and they also have portal hypertension and esophageal varices, if you give them just a little bit more anticoagulation, they may just start hosing. Uh, intracranial lesions, spinal cord tra trauma, multi-trauma patients, patients that have uh, recently received epidural or spinal anesthesia or have got epidural catheters. Uh, there are specific protocols for removing them uh, and timing of DVT prophylaxis. Uh, obviously, um, renal failure, we already mentioned that. Uh, and uh, you have to be concerned about patients who are very big or very small. Um, now, I want to ask you, Wendy, um, if you have a patient who is multi-trauma patient, and this is a very general surgical thing, right? So you got a multi-trauma, and we know that multi-trauma patients are high risk for uh, VTE, for, throm for thromboembolic events. Um, but at the same time, they, it is relatively contraindicated to give them chemical prophylaxis because they're at high risk of bleeding. Uh, what are our options as far as prevention of thromboembolic events in these patients? Scuds and then using the stockings in surgery. Is that what you mean? Stockings with compress with compression. Uh, stockings themselves don't do a whole lot, but we can definitely do the uh, intermit intermittent pneumatic compression. The scuds. Okay, we can do SCDs. We can definitely do those. Um, mm -hmm. The 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 TEDs, the compression stockings. They don't do much, but they should be applied mm -hmm. anyway. But um, if they have, if their lower limbs are also injured or if they have pelvic injury, um, and we are unable to use um, SCDs, and even if we if we can, but these patients are going to be say intubated for weeks and weeks, and we are um, mm -hmm. beginning to develop. Uh, a DVT, uh, then we can use an IVC filter. Have you heard about that? Uh, we have, yeah. Uh, yep. it's, it used to be, used to be um, a lot more commonly used, mm. get deployed in your inferior vena cava. And mm -hmm. the idea is that they catch any um, clots that are traveling from yep. your legs and route to your lungs before they actually get to the important bits. Um, they're not without side effects and and uh, mm. and problems themselves, uh, but that that is sort of the last um, ditch method. 
of preventing a, a massive PE for someone who is going to be, um, you know, in bed rest for weeks and weeks, and you cannot avoid development of a DVT in these patients. Mm. Catherine, so we talked about um, heparin and clexane as the two main methods of chemical uh, DVT prophylaxis, uh, but I heard on the greater vine that orthopedic surgeons use other things um, uh, such as aspirin and even uh, some of the NOx, which is uh, apixaban and uh, dabigatran. Is that true? Uh, yes, I have actually seen this in practice as well. I don't know what the evidence is for aspirin, given that it's an antiplatelet and not an anticoagulant, mm -hmm. but you do still see some um, orthopedic surgeons use it. I'm not sure if that's a historical thing, perhaps, um, but certainly the newer uh, NOACs uh, or DOACs, um, like factor 10A inhibitors, so apixaban, roxaban, typically, mm -hmm. You do still, you can see that being used, and um, I have seen it in practice too. Mm. And I think they're being now used uh, a little bit in cancer surgery for patients that require, uh, you know, four to six weeks of VTE prophylaxis after their major uh, surgical intervention. The advantage of the NOAX or DOAX is that they uh, work in a similar fashion as Clexane. Um, but you don't need to stick yourself twice a day or once a day with a needle and you can go home on just one extra tablet for four to six weeks. And that's a very effective way of uh, providing just enough anticoagulation to prevent those pesky VTEs. That's very true. And just like on a note about this, um, for people who might be thinking, so why is it that they don't these oncology patients don't use warfarin and warfarin is basically banned in all oncology patients typically. Um, mostly primarily really is that um, warfarin, as we know, interacts with everything and patients who are getting treated uh, for cancers are on a lot of, you know, medications that um, are sort of highly metabolized by the liver um, and so will inevitably interact with warfarin. Warfarin is just such so, a bad drug altogether, isn't it? I mean, I'm just so mm. happy uh, that we're finally moving away from warfarin. And it, and it happened literally in the last five to seven years, uh, but there's a lot less people on warfarin. And the indication for warfarin, uh, very few are remaining, uh, and they're getting less and less by the day as more evidence comes out that the NOx are just as effective uh, pretty much across the board, which is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, on that note, Serge, did you want to wrap up with our three key messages and I'll let you go first. Uh, thank you, Wendy. Absolutely. So for our first podcast of 2022 on a massive and a very important topic that we've covered only very superficially, but it is important uh, to be aware of this, of this topic. It is a completely preventable issue. The rule of, of thumb for surgical patients is that unless there is a contraindication to DVT prophylaxis. Every patient should have something charted. Catherine, would you like to go next? Have you got something? Mm, I'd like to reiterate that because I've seen a lot of charts where <laughs> hospitals have manual charting still oh, okay. and, and um, the assessment for, you know, VTE or DVT prophylaxis hasn't been done. So even when you're looking at a chart, just remember the VTE assessment is key 
never write anything on a chart unless you have looked at the VT assessment and ticked a box, whether it's, you know, contraindicated or high risk, low risk, whatever it is. Yeah, that's probably my take home message. Nice. Um, I think mine is just kind of picturing the intern arriving your first day on your surgical rotation, start to think about the patient themselves in front of you. So are they low risk and high risk? What can you be very clear about? And then what's in the middle that you might want to get some help and just ask for a bit more clarity on what the best approach is? That's uh, that's exactly what I want you to think about when you turn up on your surgical rotation, Wendy. DVT prophylaxis, that's a very good start. There we go. Thank you so much, Catherine. And we look forward to having you around in the future by the sounds of it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Virtual Board Rounds is available wherever you get your podcasts. For updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter or to send your thoughts, queries, concerns, comments. You can also email us at virtualboardrounds at gmail.com. Until next time, happy studies.